Remain standing with me if you would, and let's read from Romans chapter 1, verse 16, 17, and 18 together. The word of the Lord says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the, righteousness shall, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Thank you for standing and honoring God's word. Let's uh, go together in God's word and let's study it in just a minute. So please be seated. All right. That was kind of awkward, wasn't it? You don't know when to stand up and sit down at the right time. You sit down at the wrong time, somebody will tell you, have an usher come by and bat you on the head and say, it's time to stand. No, we won't do that. I'm just kidding. Feel free to do whatever the Lord leads you to do. You know, this is a difficult subject today, the wrath of God. And the question is, why God's wrath? As I thought about the study this week, I, I, I am reminded of the, the few times in my life that I actually did something wrong. I know it's hard to believe, but I was a perfect child and did many, many things right and in many, many different ways and was the perfect son the whole time. I know my parents watched this uh, later during the week, so I'm sure to get a phone call at some point. So just go ahead and call Dad, BR549. That's the number. Just give me a call. But... Uh, so one of the very rare moments that I happened to, to do something I should not have done, um, I remember my father, who was primarily the disciplinarian, because my mother, you know, at some point in our lives, she was kind of smaller, and, and I was taller than she was, and so it was always, wait till your father gets home, things, you know? Uh, I think my mother quit spanking me when one time she asked me to bend over and she gave me a few licks with the paddle or the belt or whatever it was. And as she got finished, I stood up and I kept going up and I looked down at her and she looked up at me and she started laughing and I started laughing and I never got disciplined by her again. But I do remember my father most of the time, not every time, but most of the time, before he would administer the belt to the proper place would always begin by saying, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. That is the biggest lie of anything I have ever heard. How could that be possible? Until I became a father. God's wrath is not easy for God. He doesn't revel in it. He doesn't find satisfaction in it. He doesn't enjoy it. As a matter of fact, he has done everything possible for mankind so that we, through faith in Christ, might avoid his wrath. And the problem I have with this subject is not only is it difficult, but sometimes those of us who are in the faith, those of us who are believers, sort of revel in the fact that God's wrath will someday be poured out upon those who do not place their faith and trust in Christ. In other words, there's a payday someday for those of us who are living in sin, especially those of us who are not in Christ. And God does not revel in this. He does not take pride in this. He's not excited about this opportunity nor this moment. But we must deal with, if we're going to deal with the gospel, the reality is that the wrath of God is very much centric in, in the gospel message of Jesus. You cannot believe in, talk about, share, or proclaim the gospel of Jesus without at some point talking about the consequence of sin. 
We've discussed that already a couple of Sundays ago when we talked about what our problem was in, in uh, Romans uh, 3.23. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. And because we have all sinned, then the Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wage of that sin is death. That's why our sinner is serious toward God. There is a, a recompense. There is a payment. There is a responsibility. There is a consequence to sin, and that is death. That's the reason why we physically die. We had a service in here last Friday, and the direct result of sin is physical death because God, when he made man, he put man and woman in the garden, and they were to live eternally with God. But because of sin, death entered now into the world and became a reality for those of us who are in Christ and outside of Christ. So it is a direct consequence of sin. And so we see that God has to be in his righteousness and all of his wonderful attributes. He is a God of love. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of grace. He is also a God of justice. And because that is his attribute, that is one of his characteristics of the many, many wonderful qualities that he has, is that he is a God who in his justice will administer his wrath. Now, the wrath that we're talking about today is not a wrath to those of us who are in Christ. This is a wrath that is displayed, that is received, that is compensated. It is a consequence as a result of unforgiveness of, a, of an unrepented lost sinner who's never placed their faith and trust in Christ. There is a concept there in which they are already under the subjection of the wrath of God in this life and will eventually then be rewarded for their sinfulness before a holy and righteous God and what we call the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, 11 through 17. So this, this subject is hard and this, this subject really pains my heart to even have to talk about it because I believe if we as believers in Christ who, who grasp the heart of God and, and as we study this concept and think about this subject, it should really bring us to our knees in, 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 in pleading for the salvation of those whom we know who are yet unbelievers because as unbelievers who have yet to place their faith and trust in Christ, they are presently under the subjection of the wrath of God and the future wrath of God upon that, that great white throne judgment day when they will stand in that great cloud of witnesses before Christ and they will be condemned forever because of their sin. It is the, the primary motivator of the, of the gospel message that the Apostle Paul hopes to bring to the, to the Romans when he arrives. It's centric in all of the whole letter that he writes to the Roman church. We don't have time to look at the complexities that are there in all the scriptures in, in this morning, so I, wanna, I want us to look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18, one verse, and I want us to look at seven characteristics of the wrath of God. Seven characteristics of the wrath of God. Characteristic number one, it's critical to the gospel. The wrath of God is critical to the gospel. Notice as he opens the sentence prior to 16 and 17 with the little three-letter word F-O-R-4. It introduces the expectation of a previously talked about subject, for. Now, we have, we have studied for the last few Sundays what 17, 16 and 17 really represent. It's, it's the, the, the gospel in a nutshell that it, it is the, 
the, the culmination of all that he discusses in the whole letter is that thesis of the letter to the Roman church or what we call the book of Romans. And, and we have seen that, that, that it is the power of God unto salvation, what the gospel and the whole Roman letter is central to the gospel. It contains all of the important aspects of how the gospel weaves its way into our lives. And so we see here that as he begins to finish his description of this thesis in what is about to proceed, he begins in verse Verse 18 with a three-letter word, for, meaning that for the reason that I have just spoken to you about the power of the gospel unto salvation, the reason why this is an important concept, the wrath of God, why is it important? Because it is centric to the gospel. Without the gospel, you, 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 you cannot have any hope to overcome the wrath. But we almost understand that in our preaching, proclamation, and sharing of the gospel, there must be some central aspect about that gospel presentation in which we are presenting the wrath of God or the consequence of sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the wage of sin is that death. So you see the consequence of sin in the recipients of the wrath of God because of unforgiven sin and a lack of faith in Jesus. They do not have the power of God under salvation. Therefore, they are already under condemnation and will continue to be condemned. And the apostle Paul is saying, the reason why I am so passionate about taking the gospel to Rome is because of the wrath of God. They are currently under God's wrath and will soon become recipients of God's wrath. It is centric. Now, many today in the church want to to leave out and to sort of intentionally not talk about, or even some in the church today want to discredit or disbelieve in the whole concept of God being a God of wrath because he's a God of love. And we market the church to unbelievers with this notion of come to Jesus and get your best life now. We sell it, we market it based upon what it can do for them, what it can do for a lost humanity. We were on the internet, we were talking in the pastor's breakfast the other morning, we were talking about a church that, that is in a certain book that we're looking at, and, and they have a, an acrostic, they use the word dynamic, and that's the, the, the dynamic that with each letter there's an aspect about why should I come to faith in Christ, because it gives the dynamic life. What are they marketing? They're marketing when you come to faith in Christ, There's a dynamic that happens in your life that makes it better. That is true. But at the heart of the gospel here in which the Apostle Paul is hoping to bring to Rome, and Rome was a city that was filled with dynamic living, but sinful living. And he was coming to bring a gospel where the wrath of God was central to his message because that is what concerned him the most, the lostness of those without Christ. I wonder if we are that concerned about the lostness around us because we're completely aware of the fact that those around us without Christ are not only under already the condemnation of Christ and the wrath of Christ, but will eventually become subject to the wrath of God on Judgment Day. Maybe that's why there's not an urgency about our message and about our testimony. Because I'm convinced that many in the church today have, have just flat out begun to disbelieve in the whole concept of God being a God of wrath. He's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. And he is those things. But because he's also a God of justice, he must be true to his character. And the wrath of God is a reality placed upon those who are unbelievers.
for. Notice it says for the wrath of God. The second characteristic I want us to look at, it is, it is not only critical to the gospel, but it's conducted by God alone. For it is the wrath of God. For it is the wrath of God. Notice the word God is a word theos. But before the noun God theos, meaning divine or divinity or God, the word for or the word of. The word of is a critical word because the word of helps us understand that there is a possession here with this noun, meaning that this wrath that belongs to God that God is the one who is the administer of this wrath. No one else is going to administer this wrath other than God. He is the administrator of this, la- of this wrath. God is the one who is deeply and personally involved in administering his wrath because God is deeply and personally involved with the sinfulness of mankind. And he's been deeply and personally involved in the sinfulness of mankind since the fall of man in the garden. And he has constantly sought to redeem mankind back unto himself by providing the sacrificial system in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament providing Jesus who became the ultimate and the final fulfillment of that sacrificial system where Jesus took upon himself our sin and dying in our place against God. And so God has already always been personally involved and, and very strategically interested in our sinful condition and is the one who administers then this wrath because when we sin, we sin not just against man, but we sin against God and becomes personal to him because it's in a personal offense to him. God is the one who conducts this administration of the wrath of God. And I think sometimes if we're not careful, we as believers or Christians want to become the ones who are the administers of this wrath. But God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And when we live in an unbelieving world and unrighteous things happen to us, it's very difficult for us to rest and to rely upon a God who eventually will, 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 will make things right on judgment day. Because if you know anything about the book of Revelation, if you didn't stay in my DU class, which DU starts tonight, Mike and I are teaching together, but not the book of Revelation, you know that God eventually pays back those who have been, those who have have crucified, who have made martyrs out of believers. There is a, a, um, I can't find the word in my brain right now, there's a a retribution, there is a, a settling of the score where those who have, who have sacrificed for the cause of Christ will see then that God will then make things right. And those that oppress and those that suppress and those that persecute believers will answer for that oppression and that persecution. We must always remember that it is God who conducts and who administers his wrath. Never us, never anyone else, not a government, not even the Islamic terrorists, but it is God who administers his wrath alone. Number three, it is clearly revealed by God. Third characteristic, it is clearly revealed by God. Notice, for the wrath of God is revealed. That word revealed means disclosed. It means bringing to light. 
It means making known, but not just making known, but making it known clearly, making it known so that they not only see it, but they understand it. And so we see, for the wrath of God is revealed. It's revealed to everyone, everywhere, without discrimination. God is revealing to a lost humanity that they, in fact, must understand and must see because he's revealing to them that there is a divine being, there is a God, there is someone superior to them, and that there is basically in their nature something that isn't right that needs correction. Isn't it interesting that even those who are not believers somehow know deep down in their hearts that not only does there exist a God, but there's something missing or wrong in their life that makes them less than God. They might not know it's sin, but they do know that they're probably sinners. I think that's one of the reasons why the, uns, the unbelieving world tries so hard to get us as Christians to embrace their sinful lifestyle, to, to affirm it. That's the whole movement in the political correctness deal is to get us who believe that it's not correct to say it is correct because they know in their heart of hearts, no matter what the government says or how the Supreme Court votes, abortion is wrong they know it but they want somehow the government or the society and even the church to affirm the reality that it isn't wrong but in their heart of hearts no matter how much legislation is passed deep down in their hearts they know that it is wrong and the word here is revealed means it means that God is being continuously revealing it to them He's continuously revealing it to them. I thought about that for a minute, moment, and I scratched my head, and it suddenly dawned on me. God is continuously revealing himself, the reality of God, and the need for God ongoing. It's a continuous effort on God's part. Because, you see, God doesn't want anyone to perish. And even though some may be against him and rebellious against him and reject him god is constantly pursuing them like jesus describes the shepherd who leads the 99 and goes after the one that is lost hoping somehow then in some point sometime some circumstance some situation in their life they'll look up and not only recognize god but receive jesus it's a continual revealing where he's constantly pursuing them with more information, additional insight, more understanding about his divinity, about his creation, about the reality of God, hoping that at some point they will turn to him, recognize him, and receive him. It's clearly revealed by God. God is revealing himself to a lost humanity. I like that. God is pursuing lost humanity and continues to reveal himself to them. Number four, we see that um, the characteristic of the wrath of God is completely a sovereign act. It's completely a sovereign act. It's clearly revealed, but it's completely a sovereign act because notice that it is from heaven. It is revealed from heaven. It's revealed from from heaven. I, I, I sort of looked at that a minute and sort of scratched my head and said, why would, why would the Holy Spirit lead the Apostle Paul to reveal to us where, where God is and where he's actively working from? He's 
you know, we, we have a tendency to believe that God is among us and God is in our midst and God is all around us. He's ever present everywhere all the time. That's true. But he's, he's clearly saying that God is doing this revealing from heaven and that God is then sovereignly acting upon this sovereign act of his wrath, his righteous indignation upon man from heaven. I think he's helping us understand that this judgment is coming from a place where God is sovereign. He is Lord. He is the authoritative one. He is the one that has the gavel. He is the one who is the judge, the jury, and the executioner. Have you ever been to court? I hope you've never been to court. I've been to court with people, and I've been to court one time representing the church with a lawyer because we had a complication with a contract, and so we had to go to court. And, and the judge is always what? He's always elevated, isn't he? A little bit higher than everybody else. Why is that? Authority. And, and, and because of my authority, I'm rendering a verdict down upon this issue. And it carries weight. And God, who is sovereign, is Lord of lords and King of kings on his throne, reigning and ruling, who sees all and who knows all, is administering now this righteous indignation towards sin that carries all the weight of the court. This judgment is coming from God who is sovereign on his throne, and God is the one who administers this verdict. It's a completely sovereign act of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God himself. It comes down from heaven. And so number five, it's calculated fairly upon all. Not only is it critical to the gospel conducted by God alone, clearly revealed by God, completely sovereign act of God, but it is calculated fairly upon all. In case anybody says, wait a minute, I'm innocent. I'm not guilty. I don't know if you've, you know this or not, but there's, there are not very many guilty people in prison. You ever felt as if you justly received a ticket from a police officer? What do you always want to do? Plead the fifth or plead innocent, right? And you want to give the police officer all kinds of reasons as to why you were justifying your lack of paying attention to the signs and going over the speed limit. And it depends on what kind of mood they're in. They'll either let you, you know, maybe off or maybe with a warning or maybe write you a, a little bit substantial less ticket or maybe, you know, if you're not, they'll write you for the right amount. But I've never known anybody to say, you know, I rightly, justly got the ticket that I rightly deserved. And I can imagine when this righteous indignation that God has inflicted upon those who are not, not those that have just sinned, but because they have sinned, they are sinners. There are some who say, wait a minute, that's not fair. Notice the passage. It says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Against all. That word against means and implies that those who are going to become recipients of the wrath of God are not on God's team. They are not on God's side. They are against God. 
and, and how they have lived their lives and how they have conducted their lives, they have conducted and lived in a way that has gone against the nature, against the principles, against the procedures, against the standards of God. Their whole lives they have been against God. They're not on his team. They, they're kind of like those who wrote root for OU or for Oklahoma State or some of those other teams that are not worthy of mentioning today. Pastor Mark, wherever you are, by the hair of your chinny-chin-chin. Anyway, he's an OSU fan, by the way, but anyway. So y'all pray for him. It's going to be a long season. Against A-L-L. Against all. That word all, I think, helps us understand that that all who are against God are going to be standing before Christ on Judgment Day, and those who are there are going to be all who are against Him, the great sinners and the small sinners, if there is a degree of sin. But we know, according to the Scripture, that there's no such thing as a great sin and a lesser sin. Yet our laws seem to indicate that there are greater crimes and lesser crimes, right? I mean, if you create a lesser crime, there's a lesser sentence. If you, create a, if, you, if, if you do a greater crime, there's a greater sentence. But with God, all crimes and all sins are treated the same. And so all who are sinners, each and every one of them, those who are considered the greatest of sinners, we would consider Hitler one of the greatest of sinners, right? He's murdered millions of people. Or, or other, we could name others. They're going to be there, but so are those that just lied one time are going to be there. Because he treats all sinners equally the same. Because it's not about how large or how small your sin is. Sin is sin, and it is going to fall under the wrath, the judgment, the condemnation of God. All sin and all sinners, great and small. And he notices, he he says two basic things, ungodliness and unrighteousness. He defines two sins. These are what I call somewhat the billboards of, of, of sin. In other words, unrighteousness and ungodliness. We've got these billboards all over Wichita, and they're sort of broadcasting, making commercials of things. And, and what he's saying is all ungodliness. What that means in a nutshell is those who do not reverence God. Those who do not reverence God. Because that is one of the root roots of sin. That is, if not the root, but one of the roots of sin, one of the main causes of sin is the fact that they will not honor God. They will not reverence Him. Ungodliness and unrighteousness, meaning that they do not measure up to the righteous requirements of God. They are unrighteous. And so basically, don't make too much out of these two single words, because I think he's just trying to sort of culminate for us Every aspect of ungodliness and righteousness, which are the two main causes of sin, ungodliness and righteousness. And later on in the text, he'll use just one word, unrighteousness, to sort of, sort of capture all of what he's saying. And so I, I think he's just saying all sin and all sinners who are ungodly and unrighteous will fall under the judgment of God. All are going to be calculated as sinners fairly, righteously, and justly. Their sins are going to be out there. Their against God are going to be there for display, and they will be found guilty because clearly the evidence shows that they are being fairly treated. And then notice characteristic number, five, number six. It's correctly executed by God. 
It's not only critical to the gospel conducted by God alone, clearly revealed by God, completely sovereign act of God, calculated fairly upon all, but correctly executed by God. Notice the text, who by their unrighteousness. There again, he sort of capsulized, he, he captures both ungodliness and righteousness with one word. That's what they're guilty of. They're guilty of sin. And because they have sinned, they are sinners. Simply put, is sin. But notice he says, who by their unrighteousness. That who by is a preposition of means which gives the reason for the sentencing that's about to be inflicted. Not only has it been calculated fairly, but it's going to be correctly executed in that they are going to read the, receive the sentencing that is justly, rightly deserved. Romans 6.23 says, for the wage of sin is death. A wage is something we receive, it's something we get because we earn it. If you have a good work ethic, you work Monday through Friday, I know how often you get paid. But if you get paid once a week, you get paid on Friday, they cut you a check. Why do they cut you a check? Out of the kindness of their hearts? No, you earned it. It's a wage, you deserve it. And, and so because you, you have earned it, you work for it, you deserve it, you get it. And some of you don't get what you think you deserve. <laughs> I get that. But these people are going to get what they deserve. And there are going to be some who are going to probably think, you know, I'm getting more than I deserve. How could I receive the wrath of God standing next to Hitler who is also receiving the same wrath of God? And yet, there are no degrees, no levels of sin. It doesn't mean that we should go out and then sin abundantly. And that's not what I'm saying. But it will be executed correctly by God himself upon those who are guilty of sin. And because of that sin, they are sinners. And because of that, then, then they deserve the righteous indignation of God. Number seven, it's caused by intentionality. In other words, they can't plead the fifth. It was something they did on purpose. It was something they did because they wanted to do it. It was intentional. Notice it says, finally in our verse, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, the word suppress means that they tried to hold it down. They tried to suppress it. Truth was being revealed on a continuous, a constant basis. It was, it was God revealing himself to them and the reality of his existence and the reality of, of, of their needing someone greater than themselves and their, their incompetence and, and their, their emptiness and worshiping themselves and idols. And so as a result of God constantly revealing and reflecting himself into their lives, they continue to suppress the truth. No matter how much he tries to interject into their lives about who he is and, and all of those, he, they continue to suppress. It's called this, this common revelation that, that is given to all men everywhere without discrimination, even those who are unbelievers. Before we came to Christ, there was this common revelation in which God was revealing himself to all mankind. Hey, there is a God. I don't know about you, but they have a saying that says there are, there are no atheists in foxholes. Right? When people are at critical times in their lives, for some unknown reason, all of a sudden they look for a higher being. Why is that? Why is it that all civilizations of all times, regardless of, of, of what time frame they've existed from the beginning of man, have always created a need to worship a higher being, whether it's a tree or a rock 
or whatever it is, there's something in us that wants to worship something that's greater than us, something that's divine, that comes from God. And yet it says here that lost humanity, unredeemed humanity that doesn't know Christ as he is revealing the reality of his existence, push down. They suppress the truth about God, this common revelation about the truth. Turn with me to verse 19 through 23. You're going to have to have your Bible with this because it's not on the screen. And if you have an iPhone, like Miss Virginia used to have, it's easier to see in this dark auditorium. Doesn't matter if it's on a page or on, a, on an iPhone, it's still the inerrant, the infallible, authoritative God, Word of God, right? I think God invented the iPhone. That's my personal opinion. Hey, if you bought a Samsung, you're in trouble now. It's going to blow up on you, so you might as well turn in and get you an iPhone. But anyway, the truth that they are suppressing is the common revelation that God has given to lost humanity, revealing himself. Notice what Paul reveals to us, the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit about this common revelation. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, they're invisible, yes, to the human eye, but not invisible because God is revealing it to them in and of and on their own. They would not be able to recognize or see it, but God is, is revealing it to them, letting them know the reality of his existence. How do they know? And I think there are several ways how they know. And I, and I, I wrote it down sort of, sort of quickly and... Uh, there, there are four ways that they can know. I want you to write these down. I want to chew on these this week, and maybe we can have a discussion about them one-on-one uh, -on -one later on. Four ways that they can know the reality of the existence of God. I think, first of all, through creation. Have you been to Colorado or Wyoming or to Yellowstone Mountains? How could you stand there and look at those majestic things and not just be impressed there is a God? You've got to be dumber than dirt to see something that beautiful and not think there's a divine creator, right? Creation itself proves the reality and the existence of God. How about one's conscience? We're born with a conscience. Everyone has one. Even unredeemed, unregenerate, heathen people have a conscience. They know right from wrong. Where did that come from? I know our, 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 our philosophers and some people want to say it's, it's social conditioning. But that's not really at the heart of the matter because deep down inside of the soul of man, there's always been, always been, even without social pressure, some sort of right from wrong ethics throughout all time. We have a conscience. Even unbelievers have a conscience of what is right from wrong. I think circumstances are also a way in which God reveals the reality of who he is and that he's there. The reason why certain things happen is a reminder of God revealing himself to a lost humanity, calling attention to himself to say, look to me, run to me. You remember 9-11? I remember 9-11. Today's 9-11. I remember 9-11 14 years ago. The Sunday after 9-11, our church was packed for both services. I mean, wall-to-wall -wall people. 
You thought it was Easter. Why? People were looking for God. Why? There was a circumstance that brought them to their knees that that caused them to look for God. And that's at times why circumstances happen, so that God can let them know, give them an understanding, not of, of all there is to know about God, but just that God exists. There's a circumstance that God is orchestrating events and activities in our world and in your life to say, hey, I am here. And then I think, lastly, consequence to sin is a reminder in which God is helping us see the reality of his existence. Because sin always carries consequences. And those consequences are a reminder that God is still on his throne and that he is alive. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and his divine nature, had been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Notice this phrase, though. So that they are without excuse. So that they are without excuse. They're going to stand before God someday without an excuse. Because they're going to stand before God And they won't be able to say, I didn't know you existed. He's going to know, and they're going to know, that he knows that they know. Did you follow what what I said? I'm confused. I'm not sure I said it right, but I hope you understood it. Notice the next verse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God as God or gave thanks to him, but they became futile... They became useless. They were oblivious of the consequences of trying to suppress the knowledge of God in their thinking. Notice the progression, okay? First of all, there is their thinking went wrong. They will worship the wrong God, and the end result will be catastrophic. Notice they became futile, foolish, dismiss the consequences of their rebellion in their thinking, and they were foolish in their hearts. Why? Because their hearts are depraved. They were darkened. And notice, claiming to be wise, they became fools. That word fools means moron. When somebody says they don't believe in God and that God doesn't exist, I'm just, I just, you moron. He does exist. They were morons. And exchanged, notice their idolatry. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the immortal God, notice how he describes God, the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man. They exchanged the mortal God for images of mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, intentionally suppressing the truth. And the lost world that we live in today is constantly trying to suppress the truth of the reality of God. That's why we're at war. How can you deny that there is a God? 9-11, 37 years ago, Matthew Charles Boswell was born to Charles and Patty Boswell. Dallas, Texas, Baylor University, Medical Center. There you go, Baylor University. That's for Miss Virginia. 
I had a son born at Baylor University Medical Center. In case you don't know, Miss Virginia's funeral was here Friday, and she was a big BU fan, and they won big time yesterday. And I got, I got thinking, I wonder if Miss Virginia was watching them play, play football. Maybe that's the edge they had. I'm not sure. But anyway, she had a special dispensation with God. God, you need to let Baylor win. Anyway, how can you look at your newborn child and miss the reality of a God. The birth of a child is so miraculous that he even makes unbelievers believe in a divine being, doesn't it? How could they miss that? They suppress it. They suppress it. That's not really a life in that womb, that's an embryo. And they suppress it. When you look at a newborn baby, you can't help but believe there's a divine being. How about circumstances like 9-11? Does that alter your belief about a divine being? I want to close with this. It's an article that I found from um, um, Zacharias entitled September 11th, 2001, Was God Present or Absent? One story was told by the men of Ladder 6. These are firemen. A company of New York City Fire Department. Seven firemen were helping a 69-year-old woman by the name of Josephine down from the 73rd floor of one of the World Trade Center towers. These brave men, already laboring under 110 pounds of equipment on their backs, led Josephine step-by-step down the staircase. At times, she was ready to give up, but they helped, encouraged, inspired, and assured her she would make it. They were like angels to me, she said. They would stop to catch her breath, and they would stop with her. She started to shiver with fear, and one gave her his jacket. One floor at a time, they got her down until finally she could walk no more and just sat down on one of the steps of the fourth floor. They waited for her, coaxing her to stand up and resume walking besides, walking because they were almost to the ground floor. But she would not move, she would not budge, for they refu- and, and they refused to leave her. Suddenly they heard and felt the floors beneath them give way under the tremendous weight of the collapsing building, and they were hurtled down with terrific force and en- that enveloped in a suffocating cloud of pitch-black smoke. One of them even prayed, God, if this is it, please let it be quick. But as the noise lessened, the smoke began to clear, and they found that they had settled over the rubble of the caved-in floors below them. Miraculously, Josephine had refused to go any further at the one point that remained intact as the building fell. All seven firemen plus Josephine were eventually brought into the daylight of safety. Had we continued descending when we were pleading with her to keep moving, they said, we would have been killed by the crush of the floors above us, one of them added. Another one said, Josephine was like an angel sent from God to stop us so that we could be safe. 
Here's some firemen who are saying, in the middle of all the circumstances of 9-11, God was still there. And it was God who helped us survive. I think sometimes we have a tendency to question the reality of God when circumstances don't go our way. How can a world deny, even in 9-11, the existence of God? And for those who deny the existence of God, those who continue to live their life in sin, the Bible says they're sinners, and as a result of their sin, they are subject now to the wrath of God, and they will stand before God someday without excuse. So the question is, where's the hope? I want to end with hope. Where's the hope? Romans 5, 8, and 9 says, But God shows his own love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. How are we saved from the wrath of God? Through the ultimate sacrifice, his name is Jesus. You want to see the ultimate demonstration of the wrath of God? The ultimate demonstration of the wrath of God is found in the gospel message, the good news of Jesus. It's the cross. The cross was the greatest display of the wrath of God upon sin and sinners. Because when Jesus was crucified on that cross and he hung there suspended in the air, dying for our sin. He took upon himself our sin against God. The Bible says that he became the propitiation for our sin, meaning that he became our substitute, and all the wrath of God was displayed upon God, displayed upon Christ. At that very moment, he died in our place. God poured out all of his wrath on Jesus while he hung on that cross. That is the greatest display that we know in the Bible yet to be the wrath of God on Jesus Christ where he died for our sin against God. Had he not taken upon himself the wrath of God and died in our place, we could not be saved. And the Bible says in our next verse that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And when we place our faith and trust in Jesus and confess him as our Savior and make him the Lord of our lives, we are no longer under the condemnation of God because Romans 8, 1 says, for therefore there is no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ. If you're in Christ today, you have nothing to worry about. But if you're not in Christ today, you have everything to be concerned about. Because not only are you presently under the wrath of God, but you will someday fall under the complete and full wrath of God at judgment, described in Revelation 20, 11 through 17. There's an accountability day for those who are sinners. Because God is God who is not only a God of justice, of love, of mercy, of grace, but also a God of wrath. And someday he must, because he is just, deal with sin personally, and he will. And if you will place your faith and trust in Jesus, God dealt with your sin personally by placing it upon Jesus on the cross where he died in your place.
So, will you take the next step? Unless you're a believer today, you need to take the next step of confessing Him as your Savior and Lord. Will you come? Will you make that decision today? As a believer, will you take the step to fully embracing that God is a God of love, of mercy and grace, but He's also a God of wrath. And the step is to lead this place becoming a testimony, a witness, a vessel, a servant that God could use. Because we believe, as Paul believed, that those without Christ are presently and in the future under the wrath of God. And because they are such, we must declare to the world that there's hope found through faith in Christ. Let's pray.